This is the KPMG Current Conversations podcast, and this episode is the future of energy. Safe, reliable, affordable, equitable. Welcome to the KPMG Current Conversations podcast, brought to you by the KPMG Global Energy Institute. Current Conversations is a podcast series featuring in-depth conversations with the nation's top energy executives and luminaries to explore today's most pressing issues and emerging challenges affecting our industry. On July 12, 2021, Regina Mayer, Global and U.S. Head of Energy at KPMG, connected with Caroline Wynn, CEO of San Diego Gas and Electric, to discuss the future of clean energy and her company's latest innovations to reach net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2045. Privileged to be joined by Caroline Wynn, the CEO of San Diego Gas and Electric. Thank you for joining me, Caroline. Of course. Thanks for having me. It's just a pleasure to take part in conversations like these. Terrific. Terrific. Well, great to have you. San Diego Gas and Electric, just for our listeners, is a regulated utility. We provide gas and electric service across 4,100 square miles, total customer base of 3.6 million, and the company is 140 years old. Not only that, you know, being in California, you're on the leading edge of innovation when it comes to clean energy and decarbonization commitments. I note that SDG&E is committed to being net zero by 2045, which is in alignment with California's statewide goal. And under your leadership since August of last year, the company's made a wide range of investments in various technologies. Let's take each of these in turn, as I believe they each exemplify the forward thinking that you and the team are delivering. Of course, you know, it's a very exciting time to be the, in the energy industry. I think because all of the new technologies that are coming out and the potential to make a difference in the fight against climate change, it's real and it's here. And at SDG&E, we've been working hard to really align all of our operations, all of our investments and our business decisions with really that goal to reach net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2045. And for us with that goal, we're not just talking about decarbonizing electricity, but also our goal is for natural gas as well. So we're not just eliminating direct emissions associated with our own operations, but our goal includes indirect emissions generated by customers' consumption of the energy delivered through our infrastructure and really central to our vision for a clean energy future is safety, its reliability, its affordability, and its equity. So we feel strongly, especially in light of the events of the past year, that this energy transition has to be just and equitable. And extra efforts must be made to ensure that disadvantaged communities are really not left behind. And our sustainability strategy focuses on identifying and developing the most cost-effective solutions with the greatest potential to impact emissions. So, you know, it's a tall order to balance multiple business and environmental priorities, but thankfully, California is such a, has such a very strong ecosystem of clean energy innovators and advocates across the utility, across the academic, government, and private nonprofit sectors that we're very fortunate to be here in California and honestly, we, you know, we can't do this by ourselves. You know, collaboration with leaders across these sectors has been critical for SDG&E's ability to really pioneer and implement innovations, as well as grow adoption of some of these clean energy technologies, such as electric vehicles. 
So that was a great overview of the high level of complexity and the multiple stakeholders that you have to try to deliver with making sure it's affordable, reliable, and equitable. As you balance that puzzle piece and try to achieve what I think is, and as you might have stated in the past, the moonshot for our generation around around climate change, you know, let's take some of these puzzle pieces in 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 order. So hydrogen. Hydrogen's one component of the many technical advantages that you have. You've announced three green hydrogen projects, the goal of putting them into service in 2022, which is quite early in the U.S. Your pilot projects will test several use cases, right, including hydrogen for long-duration energy storage with a microgrid serving a remote desert community, to your equitable piece, blending hydrogen with natural gas as fuel for electricity generation, so back to the uh, emissions of others as well, and using hydrogen for fuel cell fleet vehicles, which hopefully then could be applied to, you know, vehicles that other Californians operate. How do you see those hydrogen investments evolving? Yeah, hydrogen is such an exciting and new technology. And, you know, California has an energy surplus problem in the middle of the day that some of these hydrogen innovations can help solve. So, you know, our state frequently curtails solar production in the middle of the day because the supply far exceeds the demand on the grid. And, you know, last year, California state grid operator, the California ISO, curtailed nearly 1.6 million megawatt hours of renewable energy. And instead of letting this energy go to waste, we all need to explore how we can leverage it to produce green hydrogen. You know, we believe hydrogen is a very versatile, clean molecule, and it already is used in a wide range of sectors, whether it's industrial processes, whether it's metal refining and fertilizer production. But green hydrogen produced with renewable energy, I believe, is really this sector's great hope. And it currently only accounts for about 1% of the global hydrogen supply. So, you know, I know there's skepticism over its efficiency and whether enough can be made using renewable electricity at a commercially viable price or from natural gas using carbon capture and other storage technologies to reduce emissions. And at the scale, really, that I believe the world would need. However, I think it can potentially reduce greenhouse gas emissions on a large scale You know, example is hydrogen fuel cells can help revolutionize one of the most difficult sectors to decarbonize, and that's the heavy-duty and long-distance trucking. And, you know, in the future, we may be able to reduce the carbon intensity of the natural gas system by serving customers with a blended fuel made up of hydrogen and natural gas. So our pilot projects will test six use cases for hydrogen and and the knowledge that we gain from these pilots, including, again, the the project whose use case is to demonstrate this long-duration energy storage, which I think is really the holy grail. It'll help us understand the role that hydrogen can play in helping California reach its climate goals. And, you know, it's not enough just to expand the adoption of existing clean technologies in order to make a dent in greenhouse gas emissions and to ensure grid re- grid reliability and grid stability, we have to pursue research and development of new technologies. And that's really why SDG is investing in these hydrogen pilots, pilots. You know, the head of the International Energy Agency has said almost half of the emissions cuts required to get to net zero by 2050 
it may need to come from technologies that aren't even commercially available or on the market yet. So there's a lot of exciting developments ahead of us. And at SDG&E, we have built this culture of innovation. So uh, we're really excited about the future. That's terrific. And I'm very bullish on hydrogen, too. So I'm excited to see the outcome of your pilot projects and, and what you're able to demonstrate. You know, another component of that is energy storage. And as you pointed out, you the state has to sometimes curtail solar generation in the middle of the day. Um, and so there's an abundant supply it, it, at those times. So you have an enviable climate, you've got lots of sunshine. It creates that excess capacity that gets curtailed. You have a number of energy storage projects underway, everything from traditional lithium-ion batteries to testing technology using vanadium redox flow batteries. I'm not familiar with that term. You'll have to uh, educate us. And I, I just saw the launch of your Top Gun energy storage uh, facility that went online recently. That appears to be a strong part of your go-forward investment portfolio. T- tell us more about energy storage. Yeah, absolutely. You know, energy storage is a game changer, and it's really critical to the clean energy transition plan. And energy storage is not just key to maximizing the use of California's abundant solar energy, as I mentioned before, but it's also critical for grid reliability and grid stability, given the growing number and the severity of the heat waves in the West. You know, during last summer's heat wave in California, we deployed our energy storage assets to help limit the scope and the duration of the rotating outages. And ahead of this summer, we've integrated even more energy storage to our regional grid to really bolster that reliability. Um, As you mentioned, uh, we just commissioned a 30 megawatt uh, energy storage facility that we call Top Gun. And we have another 30 megawatts of energy storage project under construction. And behind that, another 40 megawatts are just ready to break ground. So essentially, we've tripled our utility-owned energy storage capacity uh, just this year. And, you know, over the past decade, we've been steadily growing our diverse portfolio of energy storage assets. Our first storage facility came online in 2012. And in 2017, Uh, we unveiled what was then the largest lithium-ion battery in the world. So uh, the same year, we also are testing new technologies. So we unveiled a vanadium flow redux battery project, and that was really the result of an international public-private partnership. And this was a small 2-megawatt battery, but became the first utility-scale battery of its kind to be connected to the California ISO market back in 2019. And then this year, we've expanded um, the flow battery demonstration project, to, and we're, we're testing an iron-based flow battery and how this emerging technology can really be leveraged to achieve zero-emission microgrids. So, you know, the energy storage technology available in the nar- market today has relatively short duration um, aspects of it, and, and what we need to do is more research and more development to create these cost-effective, long-duration energy storage. And and those long-duration innovations are necessary. I think that's where hydrogen could play a role because these extreme weather events that can cause these power outages can last for days. And, and you know, the long-duration storage can help balance uh, variable energy supply and demand across the, the days, across the hours, across the seasons. So, r- really, that's an important part of the strategy moving forward. 
Definitely, and, and two really key components. But another aspect of the Southern California climate that you face in San Diego is it's dry, and it increases the importance of water and water conservation. I know you've already saved one and a half billion gallons of water at the Palomar Energy Center and using reclaimed water. You collect condensate from transmission towers and you factor in water conservation in all your facility designs. I think water is the next generation of, of what we need to do to try to improve the, the planet and the climate. Tell us more about your company's overall approach to waste and water management. You know, Virginia, you're so right about that. And there's quite a nexus, actually, between electricity and water. And and certainly, you know, with over 90% of the western states under drought conditions, it, it water is scarce. And you know, we subscribe to the philosophy of this notion of this circular economy, which really emphasizes the recycling, reuse, and overall reduction of waste throughout our operations and throughout our facilities. And, you know, our sustainability strategy aims to divert 100% of the organic green waste, especially green waste related to vegetation management. Certainly, vegetation management is a big part of our wildfire mitigation and our vegetation management, our staff and our contractors, um, they take great care of trimming and monitoring nearly half a million trees that are located close to our infrastructure to prevent them from touching our power lines. And, you know, we're also working to increase recycled water use at least 90% at all of our facilities and our facilities have really set these targets around reducing energy and water usage and waste production. All of our new construction or tenant improvements at our facilities larger than 10,000 square feet are required to pursue lead silver or higher certification. So currently 14 of our facilities are lead certified and we're pursuing lead certification at our headquarters. Um, so it's important to me that as a company, we are really walking the talk. So California has tragically suffered from devastating wildfires in the last few years as well as before, but notably SDG&E service territory has not suffered a utility-caused wildfire since 2007. I understand this is in part due to the climate science investments you've made with your teams to understand changing weather patterns, you know, improve grid resiliency, like replacing wood poles with steel, improve vegetation management and other things. And you were the first utility in the country to establish a dedicated fire sciences and climate adaptation department. Tell us more about what the team has achieved and where you're focused now. Yeah, yeah, maybe I'll start and talk just a little bit about our journey. So, you know, since 2007, for over a decade, we've been investing to build a more climate resilient infrastructure. So we've been investing in infrastructure hardening. We've invested in uh, increasing our situational awareness, like our fire and our weather forecast and prediction technologies, as well as our emergency preparedness and our response. So, you know, I'm proud of our employees who've developed really industry-leading tools and programs to provide not just for our decision makers, but also our broad safety partners. So, you know, our team created this fire potential index that now we share on a daily and weekly and monthly basis to our fire agencies. 
And now that information has become so vital to what they do, they actually staff their organizations based on this fire potential index. So, you know, the the sharing of information with our safety partners has been very important. And we've also shared information with our customers to give them a high level of the types of conditions that we expect to to uh, see. So, you know, we, we've done a lot in, in that over a decade. I would tell you that in 2018, we did create a fire science and climate, climate adaptation department. And, um, you know, the department has a staff of people with really this variety of backgrounds from meteorologists who are responsible for climate event forecasting and early warning we have people in that department trained in the operational management of forest fires. You know, we also have people in that department who serve as mediators with the communities living near the installations really exposed to some of these climate risks. And um, and they've been terrific just ambassadors for us in terms of the types of conditions we see and what customers can do to be able to uh, mitigate the risks on their properties. And I would say, lastly, we have scientists in this department. We have climatologists and environmentalists really responsible for climate change studies for this long-term adaptation planning. So a big piece of what this department does is all around fires, but we're also doing these climate studies around sea level rise and and recreating partnerships with uh, local groups like the Scripps Institute of Oceanography, which, which I'm so proud to be a board member of, and we're doing projects with them, like uh, installing these buoys to really understand sea level rise. We've done a study to look at our gas and electric facilities and the impacts over the next 50 years with sea level rise. So so a lot of work going on. But maybe if I can pivot back to just what we've done around fire mitigation, um, as I mentioned, we have done a lot of investments I would say that every year we try to be better than we were the year before because, um, you know, the climate is not staying the same. The climate conditions are getting worse. We're having, you know, longer, warmer summers. It, it This drought condition that's in most of the state of California this year, it's causing lots of challenges for us as we look forward. So if I would just mention just a couple of the new things that we're focused on, uh, you know, one of them is really sh- – strategically undergrounding our highest risk areas. Uh, We're working uh, with the state of California to try to remove some of the roadblocks around permitting of undergrounding. We're installing covered conductor, which is really insulated wire. Um, One of the, I think, interesting technologies that we're deploying is uh, something we call the falling conductor algorithm. So we're installing these algorithms out on our system such that if a line does break um, because a car hit a pole or whatever that reason that the line breaks, the system will de-energize that line before it even hits the ground. So, you know, that that's some innovative technologies that our engineers have created, and we're installing that throughout our system. And, and we're coupling that with this high-speed private network so that it has the speed and the logic to be able to to do that. And that really is going to significantly mitigate the risk of any utility caused wildfire. And you combine that with what we're doing on the public safety power shutoffs. And it, it it's a very good list of tools in our in our toolkit. But I would say even probably broader than that, we're installing microgrids out in our high fire threat areas. 
And, and we're doing that to keep vulnerable communities and critical facilities really powered during these, these power shutoffs. And uh, I think one of the, the more interesting installations we have is uh, out at a CAL FIRE um, station. And this is a station that's prone. It's an air attack station. Um, it's dedicated to CAL FIRE and the U.S. Forest Service aerial attack. And it was prone to shutoffs. So we've installed a microgrid there. So uh, they will always have power, even if we have to shut off the power in their nearby regions. So that's just some of the work we've done around wildfire every year. Again, we have a culture of continuous improvement and, um, you know, proud of the work that, that we've been doing, but more work is needed. Very comprehensive from everything from ocean level rises to cutting off a line before a broken line hits the ground, you know, to microgrids. So thanks for sharing that, Caroline. Super, super comprehensive. Well, you know, let's pivot now to talk about diversity and inclusion, which is another key tenant of your strategy. Your current workforce is already 50% comprised of people of color and 42% of women in management positions, which are notable results. You know, you yourself are a role model for the kind of diversity I know corporate America would like to see. What are your plans for further diversifying your workforce? And then what are some of the key things that you're personally doing to foster and drive more inclusive behavior within your company? Well, thanks for that question. It is really important to me and something near and dear to my heart. You know, as someone who was able to rise through the ranks in a profession where women, you know, are still severely underrepresented, I take very seriously my responsibility to pay it forward. And, you know, one of my top priorities as CEO is to continue to cultivate an inclusive and a diverse culture, both inside and outside our company. And you can imagine the events over the last 18 months have certainly brought a lot of attention to social inequities. And while we, we've we always um, been a leader in this area, I think society is telling us we need to do even more. So we created a equity action plan and launched a number of initiatives over the past 18 months. And, and now today we have an executive diversity, equity, and inclusion council. We meet monthly and um, I'm, I'm chairing that. I have the great opportunity to chair that. And we advise and drive and implement our action plan and our DE&I initiatives alongside a new director position that we hired, the director, director of diversity and inclusion. So um just one of the, the areas that show our commitment to it, but it also gives me as the CEO and our senior management team a great opportunity to talk to our frontline employees and see how they're feeling and see, you know, ask them what's working well and what we could do better. Um, you know, we've also redesigned our executive incentive compensation plan, which is now tied to uh, diversity goals and supplier diversity. So um, we've done a number of things, including um, how we do succession planning to ensure diversity is a factor and align with our DNI goals. And um, we've established goals for for our company in terms of women and people of color. And um, you know, at SDG&E, our executives all serve as mentors as well. And to us, you know, great leaders are not just good at what they do, but they thrive on inspiring and coaching and sponsoring, you know, this new generation of diverse leaders. And and if we just have one minute, you know, one one pet project of mine 
It's called hashtag be that girl. And it, we really developed that to inspire more young girls, particularly those from underserved communities and communities of color to pursue careers in STEM. So science, technology, engineering, and math. And, you know, we're still severely underrepresented uh, women in general and particularly women of color in STEM in colleges. Um, so, so we launched this and we have our San Diego Gas and Electric uh, profession, STEM professionals serve as role models and mentors for young girls. And the initiative has been so successful and popular. We we have men serving as mentors as well and role models. So that's just uh, one of our initiatives that we've been doing over the last four or five years that we're really proud of. Definitely key to engage your entire workforce, um, men and women, right, to help sponsor that next level. But let's talk about you and your incredible career, because I guess hashtag you are that girl or or were that girl you know you started with the company and worked your way up from an associate engineer to become the ceo so share with us more about the key choices that you made along the way and, and what kept you at SDGE and how you architected your career to go from entry-level engineer to ceo yeah well you know i joined SDGE as a kind of a junior engineer right out of college after getting my engineering degree I moved to San Diego not knowing one single person, and I thought, oh, you know, I'll be at a company three to five years and and move on to another role. That That's what I thought uh, graduating from college. But, you know, I was super fortunate to land at a company where uh, I had great mentors and role models. And uh, Debbie Reed, who is the former president and CEO of Sempra, taught me a great deal about leadership, about you know, how to be tough, but fair. And, you know, being a female CEO, it's really this balance of how do you expect great outcomes without being labeled a tyrant or even worse, right? So uh, I always had great role models kind of kind of growing my career through this company. And I, I really never felt the need to leave the company in order to grow because, you know, at SDG&E and Semper Energy, it, it, the company culture really values and promotes women leaders. And uh, I have had just a tremendous amount of growth opportunities, and I took on a variety of leadership roles to round out really my knowledge and my skills. Uh, you know, I, I've been able to run supply management and logistics and, you know, the smart grid initiatives and, and uh, you know, the vice president of customer services, which I was always surprised they, they allowed an engineer to run that, but one of my best and greatest assignments and then most recently, the chief operating officer. So really, all of these previous roles have helped prepare me for the job I have today. And I, I so believe in, in paying it forward that we created a leadership and business academy class for our, our rising you know, managers and directors. And, and the class is really based on all the things that I wish I would have known before I, I became you know, a, a director or an officer. And um, and we're getting really good feedback from from our team and those that are on the class based on this. So um, I'm just kind of using my experience to be able to help promote and accelerate readiness. So I'm sure you didn't start off saying, I want to be a CEO, but at what point in your career did you realize, hey, I could become that? And then Share with us one or two of those lessons learned that you've baked your, this new class around so that we can get the benefit of your insight from our listeners. You, you know, I'd say truth be told, I never set out to become the CEO. 
I think with every growth opportunity that came my way, I always said yes. And I jumped in with both feet, even if I had doubts or fears about failing, right? An area that I've never had any experience on. And there were quite a few of them. Uh, but but I really constantly push myself to get out of my comfort zone and, and always be a continuous learner and always be great at, at executing and getting great out, outcomes. Uh, you know, I would say as, as we pivot to this second part of the question, I think my advice to listeners is to always have that growth mindset, right? How can how how can you do more, right? Don't limit your dreams and your aspirations. Don't let your inner voice really stifle what is possible. And you know, I, I think one of the advice that advice that I got early on in my career that I didn't embrace soon enough was to spend more time building relationships. You know, I, I was always kind of this doer, known as a doer and executor, right? And I always thought, I don't have time to go out to lunch or I don't have time to do a one-on-one or I don't have time to to really build those relationships. And I think that that was short-sighted on my part, right? Having, you know, this high level of knowledge and technical skills is really important, Um and being able to execute and have great outcomes, very important, kind of the ticket to play. But equally important is really building good working relationships, building a strong network of contacts, both internally and externally, um, who can become your sounding board and who can help you grow and, you know, and, and keep you going when when the going gets tough. And, you know, again, I was often told told that's what I should do, but uh, I, I adopted it a little bit later in my career. So, um you know, I, I would say one other piece of advice that I think it's really easy for people to stay in their lane, right? Meaning if your responsibility is engineering, you know, st- stay in your engineering lane. Think about it from the lens of engineering. But, you know, I think it's also important to put on a broad hat and to do it early. Think about the various stakeholders. Don't tune out when others are reporting in their areas because you might be running that area another time. And it's going to help you make better decisions for the company if you think about it, you know, in a 360 view. So that those are those are a couple of things that I had to learn the uh, the longer, the harder way that I would give advice to. Perfect. Yeah. Advice you might give your younger self, right? Have a growth mindset. Don't let your self-doubt stifle your potential. Spend more time with relationships and, and think broadly earlier on in your career words to live by. Any final thoughts that you would like to share with us, Caroline, before we wrap it up? You know, I I would just say maybe, Regina, one area that we hadn't touched on yet, but I do think is a really critical part of the solution and the push for a lower lower carbon future um, is electrifying transportation. It's it's one of the biggest contributors of greenhouse gases. And um, you know, at SDG&E, we, we were able to lean in early on electrifying transportation, and uh, we had the approval in 2016 to install over 3,000 charging stations in two of the niche markets, and that's for multifamily units and businesses. Um, and I think we also have a lot of tailwind behind us now. And, you know, California has shown great leadership in um, the governor's executive orders by 2035, you know, really banning the the internal combustion engines for new car sales and the automotive industry is seizing opportunities and, you know, more every year, more and more EVs are available to customers. So this is a tremendous opportunity as we think about 
the clean energy transition moving forward because if more of our customers adopt electrifying transportation, it not only cleans up and reduces greenhouse gas emissions, but over time, it will uh, start to reduce rates, especially if you can get customers charging at the right time of day. So just one other area of focus we're working on. And I appreciate the opportunity to uh, speak with you today, Regina. Thanks, Caroline. Yeah, I mean, as I started the podcast, we said California is at the leading edge of decarbonization period. And you touched on so many different aspects of that, you know, everything from storage and from electrification of transport and how we mitigate some of the risks associated with climate change and then how to architect a successful career. So you've covered so much ground. I'm sure this will be incredibly insightful and I'm very grateful for your time today, Caroline. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to The Future of Energy, safe, reliable, affordable, equitable. A transcript of this episode is now available on the KPMG Global Energy Institute at www.kpmgglobalenergyinstitute.com. And be sure to subscribe to the KPMG Current Conversations podcast to be notified of new episodes.